1: podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Lucy Baldwin, senior lecturer in criminology at De Montfort University and previously qualified social worker and probation officer. I talk to Lucy about her motivations to work in the field of mothers and their children in the justice system and what she believes needs to be done to better protect and support them.
2: My name is um, Dr Lucy Baldwin and I am a senior lecturer in criminology at De Montfort University and um, in my former lives I've been, um, I'm a qualified social worker and probation officer so sadly I am so old that I have 35 years experience <laughs> in the criminal justice system Um so I, A lot of years have kind of brought me to this point.
1: And what has led you into this field of sort of mothering justice and particularly looking at the plight of not just women, but particularly mothers and their children in the criminal justice system? How did you get
2: there? It was a strange pathway, I think. And I think it's kind of, um, it's one that has come from lots of different places. I had quite a difficult childhood, with lots of really negative experiences, and um, left home very young, and became a mother very young. I was um, I was pregnant at sixteen, and then had another baby when I was eighteen, and and so I think mothering for nearly all of my life has been central in one way or another. Like most women, I suppose, but but it's been the biggest part of my life, one way or another. So I think my personal experiences and growing up as a teenage mom in the 80s and remembering that judgment towards teenage moms and um you know the the whole Margaret Thatcher spiel and the conservative party spiel of you know single mothers are the scourge of society and the cause of all of you know discontent and um and offending youth so I, I remember that stigma and I remember not enjoying that stigma and I also remember the expectation that I would fail as a mother because I was young because I was so young and having to kind of fight for for people to change their opinions and and me also having to constantly prove people wrong. And did you feel that that was a sort of
1: political discourse that was coming out but was that also sort of media you know, the influence of media that's so pervasive, isn't
2: it? Absolutely. There there were headlines. I used, I referred to some of them in my PhD, but, you know, I remember, I remember them vividly, those attitudes and the the negative um, opinions. And actually, I wasn't a single man for all of that time. I was actually married very, very young. um, But but when I was pregnant, I couldn't wear my rings um, because of my, my fingers swelling. And when I went on to the ward, I was offered a wedding ring by the ward sister who said, we keep a box of rings on the ward for girls like you. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And that was 1983. It was very, very bizarre, and you really felt that because of the media, because of how people reacted to you, because of the TV. It was something that had a profound effect on me, it really did. And I remember that really quite deeply.
1: Did you feel able to challenge that at the time, or did you do what actually most of us do when you're in such shock? You look a bit startled and you sort of don't say anything and you accept the ring.
2: Yeah, No, I didn't. I didn't feel able to challenge it at the time. I I really didn't. And interestingly, I did later because when I was doing my master's, I was actually pregnant with my daughter, but I had the same consultant that I'd had when I'd had my boys. And um, he'd, he'd come along and, and he'd seen that I was writing my thesis in labour, <laughs> in the hospital, <laughs> as you do. Yeah, as right. you do. And because um, I was being induced and he was like, oh, my dear, what have we got here? What, what, what are we doing? And I explained to him. And so then he, he said to me, um, oh, would you like would you like a single room? Would you like to be away from those people? because he, and he reacted to me completely different because i was doing a masters at durham than how he'd reacted to me as a 16 17 year old girl when he'd actually dismissed me for crying when they used to do internals then and and i actually said to him then you are treating me very differently to how you treat me when I was a young girl. And no, I wouldn't like a private room because those people are the reason that both you and I have a job um, because that was my my social work master. So,
1: and how did he react to that out of interest?
2: He was very kind about it, actually. He really listened. He sat down and had a conversation with me. Um, and I was really quite shocked by that because he was a really quite... Mature <laughs> consultant by that time and renowned for being um, grumpy with some people. And But he did, he actually sat down and had a conversation with me and for the rest of that pregnancy, he couldn't have looked after me better.
1: It's interesting, so... isn't it? It's something I think about a lot within the criminal justice system and particularly when it comes to court when um, it's kind of like the educated versus the uneducated in many ways and it's like this sort of weaponizing. Um, your intellect, actually, and the fact that he saw you had a brain and you were studying, therefore he was going to treat you like a more civilised human being. And I
2: just think it's an interesting sort of concept to think about. I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's far too much of that other in that goes on you know, anybody who writes with me knows I can't stand the phrase these women. And I think it's because for me, it, it makes me feel that people are being othered. And, you know, I, I was just as clever whether I had a qualification or not. I was just as human whether I had a qualification or not. I was just as decent whether I had children at 16 or whether, you know, when I was having my daughter at, at 28 in the middle of a master's. So I, I think there is that temptation to other. And I think there's all of those feelings of injustice, time- up with my experiences as a social worker and a probation officer and watching women really survive against all the odds but also mother and mother well against the odds you know women women are incredibly resilient I'm not saying men aren't they are but women are often dealing with so much more whilst trying to parent and I think you can't help but be impressed by that particularly of women in the criminal justice system and there's always this assumption that because you've become criminalized or because you live in poverty or because you're disadvantaged that you're automatically a bad mother and I think it's that that frustration and anger against those beliefs that made me want to I think actively pursue working with mothers and children more actively and I, and I have you know I've worked with men and women throughout my career but I think it's working with mothers and children that I think I've always found the most rewarding.
1: Right. And and today we're particularly talking about mothers in the criminal justice system. So for any of our listeners that might not know the criminal justice system at all, um, some people who are listening will know it inside out. um, But could you paint a picture of the problem that we actually have?
2: I think for women in the criminal justice system, the biggest problem is that there are so many missed opportunities before women come into the criminal justice system so you, it, i think really in relation to women particularly we criminalize poverty and we criminalize trauma and had had women had support at much earlier um times during their lives then very often they would never have become criminalized at all and i think that's one of the biggest issues is is that it's just the lack of support that's available for women when they're vulnerable to becoming criminalized and 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 there's just not enough opportunity to intervene in that stage to prevent the next stage even occurring
1: right and particularly in that bit we know that women particularly can suffer abuse sort of within their relationships and it's much more relational is it with the women compared to the men not saying that men don't run into trouble with their relationships because of course they do but it's much more emphasized isn't it with the women
2: definitely and I think you know I mean over 50% of women we know have have experienced abuse in their relationships and in and in their childhood or both and and They're the ones we know about. You know, I mean, my experience in prison, and I'm sure yours is exactly the same, is that in reality, I think it's probably far higher than 50%, but not everybody reports it or not everybody has become a a recognised statistic partly because of the lack of support, but partly because of an acceptance that this is a way of life and a reluctance to report for all of the reasons that most of us will will know about. Um, and I think that that in itself brings incredible challenges because, I mean, you know, just last week I was talking to a mum who was prosecuted for taking drugs into prison, but she was forced into that by a violent partner who had said to her, if you don't, not only will I beat you, but I'll beat your children. And, and you know, she was kind of saying, what choice did I have? And in, in reality, as a mother, if somebody who you believe and know to be a violent person because of experience is telling you they will beat your child if you don't take these drugs into prison, what could most mums do in that situation, particularly if as she had you'd grown up in a violent house you'd grown up with violence it was part of your life you knew and expected it to come and you didn't have the skills or the support or the or the ability to to walk away from that or to resist that
1: and that seems to be the bit that has often been missed. I mean, I remember when I sat on the advisory board for female offenders, which was advising the government on the reforms of the female prison estate. and And, you know, that was back sort of pre-2018 when the female offender strategy was actually published. So it was the five years before that. But it's like there was, it was the first time in a way that the government had a recognition that the pathways for women going into the prison system and the criminal justice system were inextricably linked to men's violence and i sat there through so many meetings and not just on that board but in in different areas as well in different meetings where there was a defensiveness that came from the men and this isn't criticism it's just something i observed over years and years and years that they didn't want to really accept that because they saw it as women blaming men for women behaving badly and it was a real shame, but I was quite young at the time and I remember thinking, God, this isn't very mature and very adult if people are going to get defensive about actually what is just a fact and something that we need to dig into. Do you think that's getting better now?
2: I think that defensiveness is, is difficult to deal with because it... it... It creates issues. I think sometimes you, the judiciary are defensive and I think men in general can be defensive. But but that's not to say you don't have fantastic male practitioners and male um, men who in the criminal justice system who are deeply, deeply aware of the issues and, and really want to address them. I mean, Lord Farmer would be an obvious example for a start. Um, but I know lots and lots of prison officers, police officers, probation officers who are male who do a fantastic job and who don't get defensive and who do recognize um who do recognize that so i think on an individual level it's got much better and i think men ma- male role models are starting to realize the importance of their role actually in with women in criminal justice in in, in being a positive role model so i think on an individual level and in a grassroots level a practitioner level it's definitely got better but i think in terms of the level you're talking about i think there is still that reluctance to recognize and accept that the patriot. Society that we live in, it has influenced men, and but it's also influenced policy and practice that have developed and continues to influence and shape the the criminal justice system and the prison system in favour of, of of men, and as a, which which can really result in women's needs being neglected or not met at all. And I think that's where the challenges lie in, in recognising that without defensiveness. And I think we are in a better place in terms of a willingness to move forward positively than I think we've ever been. I mean, you know, I've just been involved in an edited collection with some brilliant um, academic partners and Pat Carlin wrote the forward for it. And it was a book that the book that we're working on is kind of, it, it, it's a, it's an updated version of criminal women, which was written in 90 in the in the early 1980s, 83, I think. And, But really, sadly, we are calling for exactly the same things that Pat Carlin called for in the 80s. So this knowledge isn't new. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. We are asking for the same things that we've asked for for a very long time. And the knowledge isn't new about women's pathways into offending or women's pathways out of offending. It really, really isn't. But I think... I'm cautiously optimistic that that there is enough will and enough movement to move forward positively um, at the minute. And you know, notwithstanding some of the challenges around the new 500 spaces um, and and the expansion of the prison estate, I think aside from that, there are some that there is definitely some some positive progression that I see at a grassroots level in the prisons and your organisation being accepted into that and being brought into the prisons and and being part of working life in prisons now I think is part of that you wouldn't have had that 10 years ago
1: I take you back even further to maybe Elizabeth Fry because (laughs) having read of some of her works you know you kind of go oh my god it's 2021 and we're saying the same thing and then I found this Brilliant quote by um, Baroness Corston in 2007 in one of your academic articles that you'd quoted, and it said there can be few topics that have been so exhaustively researched to such little practical effect as the plight of women in the justice system. No, no, absolutely. So, could you maybe give us an example of um, a woman who is either pregnant or has a child, and you know, kind of going into the court area? and maybe sort of take the listener through a bit of a a journey from court to prisons maybe and then out into the community and what might be typical
2: well i can i could probably it's probably easier if i refer to several women i think rather than one woman and i'll talk to you about one woman's experience who i was talking to um just the other day, we assume that everybody who comes into the criminal justice system knows everything about how the prison system works or how or what works. And I was talking to a mum last week who had no knowledge of that. She was coming into prison as somebody who who didn't have a criminal background. It was a first offence and she was pregnant. She didn't even know that mother and baby units existed. So, as a pregnant mum and as a very pregnant mum, she was in her last um, five weeks of pregnancy. She had no idea that her child potentially could come into prison with her. So she had, she was, she'd gone into the police station and arrested and just been consumed with thoughts about her baby and be, the baby being born in prison and what on earth was going to happen the same in court, she had no knowledge, nobody had spoken to her and said, you can apply for an MBU, your baby might come into prison, um, and there was nothing, they were, and she actually came up with a fantastic idea about that, that That there needs to be some kind of posters and information in police stations and in courts, which actually I've taken to birth companions and I think they're going to run with, Um, but she sat there in the police station, in the court, not having a clue that her baby might be able to stay with her and so she was trying to prepare herself for for her baby being taken from her and and i mean how do you prepare for that imagine that she couldn't concentrate on any of the processes any of any of the court processes because all she was thinking about was that her child was going to be taken um thankfully for that mum she was advised as soon as she was taken into the prison um she had a a really good example of when things go well and she was advised straight away that she could apply for an mbu space there's a mbu board or some mother and baby unit board where a number of people sit to kind of assess an application for a mother and baby unit place and sometimes they're sat for women who've been in prison a long time sometimes they they don't get sat until a woman is in labor occasionally it happens after she's had the baby so women can spend all of that whole time period in prison not knowing whether they're going to have their baby with them or not not knowing whether they're going to have a space or not and actually we have quite a high rejection rate um for the mother and baby unit boards
1: just quickly am i right in saying the six mother and baby units across the 12 women's prisons in this country that's right
2: yeah there's space for i think it's 64 babies all together there's an allowance for twins i could be wrong on that one but i'll check that out um but so, so this mum was fortunate she had a, an she had a very quick board and she had a very quick answer so she was actually given a space on an mbu and she spent the last few weeks of her pregnancy on the mbu and had her baby through the mbu which doesn't always happen um sometimes like i say women spend the whole of their pregnancy in the normal location which can be terrifying for women um but this mum was lucky and she's she's on an mbu and she she will stay on that mbu however her sentence is longer than the period that the baby is allowed to stay on the mbu so babies are allowed to stay for 18 months occasionally individual MBU managers if the mum is due out when the child is say 20 months or 21 months they might extend that stay and they can extend it up to two years.
1: That's so interesting because I wrote my dissertation as an undergraduate 20 years ago on mother and baby units and the attachment theory Mm -hmm. and the damage the irreparable damage sometimes that we do to babies and mothers when we remove them and that was almost 20 years ago and it sounds to me like that hasn't
2: changed. Not, no, we still have women who are dealing with that. I mean, Laura Abbott, myself and um, Sinead O'Malley, we wrote a, a, a chapter on um, um, to, from the children's oh. rights perspective, you know, and, and looked at the harms and the, the, the psychological and long-term harms, actually, to the child of being a, a, an MBU baby and going through that stress of being inside a, prison, a prison-based prison mum and what, if you know, the impact of that um, separation. But, yes, yeah, so this, this mum will actually end up being separated from her child because her sentence is is longer. So at some point, her child Mm. will be taken out. And that in itself, I mean, I've known mums who choose not to have their children with them on the MBU because they they can't bear the thought of that 18 months of loving and close contact and then the separation. So I've known mums who make the decision not to have the child with them.
1: So, and, so to prevent them from bonding at all, in a way, it's like, get it done now, take the baby away. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. And I've known other mums who've had to make a really difficult decision because, like you said, there are only six MBUs, Um so mums sometimes have to make the choice between moving to an MBU, which might be many, many, many miles further away from home, which might mean that their other children who are too old to be on an MBU are left at home and then can't visit because mum is so far away with the new baby. So effectively, we're kind of asking mums to do a Sophie's choice of: well, do I choose to keep the baby with me and and move to an MBU, which means I can't see my children, or do I choose to keep all my children together? So so that I can see them sometimes, but that means not having my baby with me in here. And you cannot imagine the agony of those decisions as a mother. It's it's absolutely, it's it's horrible. It's horrible that we have women in those situations.
1: Yeah, it beggars belief. And, and just going back to the sort of court area, do judges ask... Um, a woman about their I mean I have done a podcast with Dr Shona Minson about this if any Mm. of the listeners are interested to go deeper into this but she's obviously done a lot of work on trying to get this improved hasn't she but where are we up to now do judges ask
2: women whether they have children There's been additional guidance following Shona, myself and Shona and a number of others like Laura Abbott, we we gave evidence to the Joint Human Rights Inquiry into maternal imprisonment and the rights of the child. And following that inquiry, there was an additional report that came out that's available online if people are interested. And the recommendations from there were kind of reiterating the previous guidance that judges must ask um, and they must also account for, not just ask, but they must account account for um, the children and the Bangkok rules which are you know global um, international rules that kind of are meant to guide sentences in relation to uh, sentencing in pregnant women and women with dependent children and again they're available online and if sentences were consistently mindful of even that guidance we would see fewer women um, come into prison pregnant or fewer women with dependent children but sadly we know from research that you know, it's not a consistent response. There are some fantastic sentences who will always ask and who will always be mindful of children and will always be mindful of the impact of a maternal imprisonment on children. But there are other sentences who either because they're not knowledgeable about women's offending or they're not knowledgeable about the local area alternatives or there aren't any local alternatives in the community, then they feel like they have no choice but to still sentence women to prison. And I think that, appears to be slowly changing. I think the drip, drip effect of people like myself and Shauna and Laura Abbott and birth companions and women in prison and yourself, I feel like we're having some impact and sentences are becoming more aware and there are local areas where they have gendered um, courts, which I think is really important, and they have diversion schemes, which are really important. And in those areas, you and it is mostly magistrates who sentence women um, because of the, the relatively minor na- nature of most of their offending, and in those areas where relationships between women centres, for example... Um, and, and and women are, are positive. we see we see shifts in sentencing behaviour and we see that consideration, but it's it's not consistent.
1: So it's important I think to point out also that the UK has the highest rates of women's imprisonment in Western Europe and that three quarters of women um, serving prison sentences in this country well in England and Wales but there's no women's prison in Wales, so only in England, three-quarters of women um, are serving sentences of less than 12 months. So, you know, it's interesting to sort of get those facts out there, isn't it? Because context context is everything. Um, And also I think it's crucial to point out that while some women will go onto a mother and baby unit, some pregnant women find themselves on the wings, right? Right.
2: Definitely. I mean, Rona Epstein and myself. We did a piece of research in 2017 called "Sharp but Not Sweet," and that specifically looked at the impact of maternal imprisonment for mothers who were serving short sentences. And in that report, we had three pregnant mums um, who, and two of two mums, lost their babies in prison. Actually, one in handcuffs, in an ambulance on the way to hospital, and one in her cell overnight, and. Both of those mums felt that the stress of being in prison and the stress of and, and the fear and the anxiety of being pregnant in a normal location contributed to their miscarriage. We'll never know for certain, but it's common knowledge that amongst those of us that are involved in this work that women who are pregnant in prison are incredibly stressed. They experience fear for themselves, fear for their tummies, fear for their baby. They experience a reluctance to bond because of the fact the baby might not stay with them. They experience hunger. They experience discomfort um, in terms of the provisions and the mattresses. Um, it, it, it's a real challenge to be pregnant in prison. Was it summer
1: 2019, the case you're talking about, when um, a lady hit her alarm button a few times, no one came, and the baby was born in the cell? and the baby wasn't alive when the officer arrived. Now, I don't know the details of the case, so we won't go into it too much, but I think it's important to give the listener who maybe doesn't know much about this topic that it is really a genuine problem. And often when people say, well, there's hardly any women in prison and there aren't that many pregnant women, there aren't that many children affected, oh, the number of babies is so low, that doesn't matter. Not only is that utterly horrific um, for the mother and the trauma of that but for the staff as well you know you could argue yes that someone should have got there quicker but the prison system is the prison system you know a staff member arriving into that scene as well you know this is this can all be avoided I think is what we're saying isn't it
2: Definitely, it, it absolutely could. I mean, sadly, there's been three three baby deaths in the last, um, I think, three and a half years. Two in prison cells, and one um, on the on the way to hospital when they didn't get to the hospital in time. And, you know. We'll never know for certain whether those babies would have survived had they been born um, outside of prison, but the likelihood is, with all of the babies, that with medical intervention, that they would have done. And I think you're right, we need to avoid this happening in the future and level up have a campaign at the minute um that is to see a presumption against sending any pregnant women to prison at all and i think that that has to be that has to be the way forward that has to be the path that we
1: okay um, but just on that just a challenge because i can then hear the voices in my head going or the the people um that might say well then surely a woman will just get herself knocked up, get a bun in the oven before she uh, is heading to court and then she'll be let off, so...
2: I I think I don't think you can always legislate for an exception. I personally, knowing women in this area, I don't think that 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 many women would go to those lengths to avoid a prison sentence, um, because we all know having a child is a lifelong commitment, and if you're not ready for it, it's it's not something many women would choose to do to avoid a prison sentence. So I think I I don't. I accept that some people will have that argument, but I don't accept that it's a it's a very valid one. I think there might potentially be one or two people that would ever do that. But the benefits of not sending women to prison who are pregnant would far outweigh that that exceptional stance. And and I I still think regardless we we, we need to pursue that avenue really.
1: I like that saying you can't legislate for the exception, because there'll always be exceptions to every rule, won't there? But that isn't an argument so then
2: overall sense absolutely and and it it is about common sense and it's also about moral decency you know there are there are alternative ways to respond to women in the criminal who who become criminalized and you know prison is not our only option we know that prison is a lot less effective statistically than community alternatives so even the, the the even the moral arguments that you know we still, we must still send people to prison they don't stand up because financially emotionally physically practically psychologically the benefits far outweigh the losses in terms of women being women being rehabilitated in the community and we know that uh, uh, all singing all dancing community order the very most it will cost would be around about eight thousand but most cost far far less around about two whereas a prison sentence for a woman in custody is nearer sixty thousand and that's more if it's with a child so even on a financial argument alone it makes no sense
1: and that's also tip of the iceberg because you've got the woman's prison sentence but then you know if you then talk about children a child or children being taken into care you know the cost of all of that and then you know
2: you could easily end up at a million for a woman with two or three children whose children are then taken into care and just imagine what you could provide in terms of rehabilitation for a a tenth of that It makes no sense. It makes no sense that we still continue to do this when all of the evidence shows us that, for the most part, prison does not work, and especially it does not work for women. So
1: then if we're going to look at the community sentences then, I mean, you know, there's problems, obviously, in the community, what with the probation service having been privatised, that was um, an anticipated disaster. It has been Mm. a disaster, so now they're unravelling that. Um, And that's problematic for men and women, pregnant women, non-pregnant women, everyone who's caught up in it, including the staff. However, what does good look like then? So a woman is pregnant in court. It's low-level acquisitive crime. Maybe she doesn't have an addiction. It's quite straightforward <laughs> in a sense. So then she gets given a community sentence by the magistrate. So then can you paint a picture of what maybe good might look like? I mean, you can
2: even pretend you have a magic wand if you want. If I had a magic wand, then I would make sure that all women are supervised in the community in women-only resources, by women-only teams, by probation officers who have a women-only caseload. And that is purely and simply because, because many women in the criminal justice system have multiple needs, not all women, but a lot of women do. And whilst they are are usually hugely strong and resilient women they also have a number of vulnerabilities and those vulnerabilities take time so asking a probation officer to carry a mixed a mixed gender load and allocating the same time to supervise men and women can be really challenging so I think there's a valid argument for gendered teams and for, for probation officers to supervise women only I think all women ought to be, I mean, my research particularly, but lots of other research demonstrates that their needs are far better met if they're they're met via a women's centre. And you have a women's centre, and if we're having a magic wand, that would be a women's centre that was permanently funded, which is really, really important, that is permanently funded, that has, has access to multiple professionals so um like your Hope Street intends to have and um I mean I think your Hope Street is probably a bit like a women's centre with a magic wand it's going to look like that really uh,
1: we hope I'm going to hand a magic wand to every member of staff hopefully but
2: yeah no I, and I think that's important and I think it has to be a space where women I mean I remember going up to a women's centre called Glasgow 218 I don't know if you've ever been it's a fantastic women's centre and Going into that women's centre because it's permanently funded, you've got staff who've been there 10, 20, 15 years. That doesn't always happen in our women's centres because women have to the staff have to reapply for their jobs every three or four years. That has an impact. That's not to say we don't have some fantastic women's centres with fantastic long-standing staff because we do, but they do it under a under a sword of Damocles. And if you're going to look after people
1: who've been traumatised and you're trying to help women and children or men and boys, whatever, you know, you need a stable foundation of uh, the finances, 100%. don't you? That stability
2: is really important, but also is is the ability to recognise the root causes of offending and to address those. So if you do have women with addiction, happy people don't become addicted generally. So if you have a woman who is addicted to substances, nine times out of 10, she's become addicted to substances because of a trauma that she's gone through and a trauma that is probably ongoing but certainly the after effects are 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 kind of impacting on her need to use substances so that trauma that initial trauma and the initial failure to support that trauma and the the resulting perpetuating trauma needs to be addressed but on top of that you've also got if women and mothers very often they'll have a guilt on top of that, on top of that trauma about the impact of their trauma and their substance misuse on their children. And so that feeds into their their emotions that are very difficult for women to deal with. I mean, we all know women who are not criminalised, you know, we feel guilty if we don't give our children enough, if we give them too much, if we work, if we don't work. Motherhood and guilt is synonymous. But For criminalised women, the fact that they're criminalised and the fact that they might have been using substance is is a hook to hang their guilt on, and that perpetuates a cycle of, I can't deal with these maternal emotions of guilt, so I'm going to use substances because I can't cope, and I'm going to use substances. And then that can lead to loss of babies, which then you've got a situation where you've got a mum who... The trauma's not been addressed, and she's lost a child... So what is that mum going to do? It stands to reason she's going to revert to her only coping mechanism, which is a substance misuse, and she will replace the child and have another child. So we have this cycle of women who end up having child after child, and that that comes from um, a place where their trauma originally was not responded to appropriately. So I think addressing trauma and and... Tying it up with women's maternal emotions and women's lived experience is really important and dealing with that in an informed way in a, in a gender specific place is really important. That's the thing. They're the things that make the difference.
1: Right. And your academic work is sort of seen through a
2: mattress centric
1: lens, right? And um, I'm just sort of, I think that was a new word for me. Um, And I, I presume it sort of means putting the mother, seeing things through the sort of mothering lens, if you like. And I was reflecting on that before we started recording this podcast, because having three children myself, it's interesting that, you know, you become a mother, it's all quite overwhelming, you change so much as a person, and then you sort of get into your rhythm, and, and life moves on, you have another one, and maybe another one, and, and, and I was just thinking about what that meant for me, actually, and it is sort of, then I was like, oh yeah, of course, like, every single decision I make is seen through the lens of these three human beings, everything, the time I get up, You know, the rhythm of my day, how long I can be somewhere else, whether I book a holiday, like literally everything Everything. is dependent and goes through the sort of child funnel. And I hadn't really consciously thought about that before until I was doing a bit of research before the podcast and it was just a an interesting one
2: definitely and I think that's the case for women coming into prison I mean women coming into prison who are mothers have an additional layer of of challenge of harm of impact that women who who don't have children are that's not to say that it's 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 a difficult one because you can't. Uh, there's no hierarchy of, of, of it necessarily being harder. But it's, but it's a layer of complexity that needs to be factored in. And I think that's really important because if you have a mum who comes into custody and we know it happens all too often that mothers have either been advised that they weren't going to get a custodial sentence or that they weren't expecting one. So we have mums who come into custody who have dropped their child at school expecting to pick that child up that mum, that woman coming into prison with that on her head not knowing who was going to pick up her child not knowing who was going to tell her child that she's in prison not knowing when she's going to see that child and not knowing she's going to contact that child that woman coming into custody is going to have a different experience to a woman coming in without children and, and I think it's recognising that harm and that vulnerability and that risk actually that if that mum doesn't get that phone call home very quickly or or to somebody who can pick up that child or organise a childcare, how vulnerable she is that night. The number of women I speak to who talked about being suicidal in their first days and weeks in custody, and that was always related to their children, either their emotions at being separated from them or the guilt at being um, in the situation that they're in and the impact that they know that's going to have on the children or the sense of worthlessness that they feel as imprisoned mothers that makes them think their children would be better off without them. And we have to recognise and work with that risk because when, when we have mothers in custody, whether we always believe it or not, whether it's always obvious to us or not, very often their primary focus remains their children. And so asking a mum who's just had a phone call from a 13-year-old child saying that they're being bullied at school and they're suicidal, asking that mum to then go into a sentence planning meeting, she's not going to be able to focus, she's not going to be able to engage. So we have to respond to this layer of motherhood in order to be able to do the best with our women in custody. And we have to prepare them for release because my research shows women... One one of my women is 46 years post-release and she still has symptoms of PTSD. She still experiences PTSD from the separation from her children. And women really struggle post-release to reintegrate into the family, to reintegrate into motherhood, to accept either the loss of the children or the temporary loss of the children or the dilution of the maternal role. It's it's an absolute minefield. And currently, it's not really addressed. Sorry to interrupt, but not to mention the re-
1: unification and when the mother comes out and the amount of stories I've heard of you know mothers who are obviously desperate to see their children who might be older now and then of course and understandably the children feel like they've been abandoned and left and maybe have serious anger towards their mother Um, and how difficult that process is too and you sort of think my god this untold damage that we're heaping on people left right and centre uh, it can be stopped and minimised. Yeah. You know, we can't eradicate this stuff, of course. You know, we have to be realistic. But, you know, what I'm interested in and what small, one small thing is interested in is minimising this sort of colossal damage to just lesser amounts even. Even that would be yeah. better.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the impact, you know, the, the especially with teenagers, when, well, you know, when mums come back out, there are those challenges and mum might have lost their disciplinary role because the teenagers might say, well, how can you tell me what to do? You've been to prison. And for other mums, they almost feel the need to serve a penance. So they might spoil their children, you know, and give them anything and be reluctant to discipline because they want to make it up to their children for where they've been. But it doesn't just stop at that layer as well. The amount of women have spoiled to who when they've been out a long long time and perhaps their daughters or sons have gone on to have their children there's a whole nother layer of, of shame and blame that comes back out because when when the daughters particularly become mothers they will then have another response of how could you have done this now I'm a mother how could you have done this to us how could this have happened and all of the shame and blame comes back and The relationship between mothers and their adult children reverts back to how how damaged it was when the mothers first came out. It's a real intergenerational impact. I've got some grandmothers who their grandchildren don't know that they ever served a prison sentence. So one of my grandchild had asked her what she'd done for her 21st and she said she felt the shame flooding back and the trauma of her prison sentence flooding back at her because she knew she'd been locked up for her 21st but her grandchildren don't know she'd ever been to prison. So she feels like she avoids deep conversations with her grandchildren in case these questions come up. So it's still her sentence from, you know, 30, 40 years ago is still affecting her relationship with her grandchildren. It's never ending. I mean, one of my mums she called it a life sentence. She said, you know, prison for any mother is a life sentence. And the more and more women I see and speak to, the more I see that that is actually true. And, uh, you know, we have to do more to mitigate the harms for women. And I think first and foremost, that would be sending far fewer women to prison, um, particularly for these short sentences that are unnecessary, but that still have a forever impact. However short they are, they have a forever impact. Um, And I think that has to be the first thing. But we also have to be better at responding to women and responding to women who are mothers um, during the the prison sentence and, importantly, supporting them post-release. And that can be just minor things like I, I use this example a lot. But a mum said to me, um, you know, she'd gone to prison, and um, an officer had said to her, you know, there was there was a conversation about children, and the officer had said to her, "You've got four children," and in that one statement, she'd heard. you've you've got four children, you're a bad mother, you shouldn't be here, what a terrible mother to be here and have four children. When just by saying, so you have four children, what are their names, completely changes that interaction and takes away that shame and blame. And so some of the work I'm doing with Sodexo at the minute particularly is around staff training about working with mothers and, um, you know, kind of trying to encourage officers and enable officers to have the skills to engage with mothers differently and in a way that is positive rather than negative, um, because that makes a huge difference.
1: Absolutely. Are there any differences when it comes to women from different
2: cultures and different backgrounds? Definitely. Um I mean Sophia Bunsi does some brilliant work with Muslim women in prison, for example, and um you know, the women in, in her project spoke about the additional layers of shame of culture of being a criminalised woman and how that then impacts um on them as mothers, particularly. And, you know, I've had experiences with women from different cultures where the mother in laws have have taken a really significant lead with children while they've been in care and because sometimes there's a power relationship and a power dynamic there that can be different um the that the children are then not returned because that mother's not deemed, you know, worthy enough to be a mother. Um, and I, I, I've got one mum in my research who, as a black mum, she'd gone to her probation officer and her probation officer had said to her, um, not only have you let yourself down, but you've let your race down. And she'd actually said this to her, you've let your race down because as a black woman, you've conformed to a stereotype, you've fed into the stereotype. So this, this mother had that layer of shame as a woman, as a mother and as a black woman. So I think intersectionality is really, really important and we absolutely have to factor in race and culture, particularly in relation to women and motherhood. It's so it's so important.
1: Yeah, I um, started off my sort of prison career in um, Nepal in and the first prison I ever went into was Central Jail in Kathmandu. And over there, for instance, you know, when a mother goes to prison, all her children go with her because actually it's seen as such a terrible thing that the children are then cast out of the family as well. So they all go to prison at the same time. And so that was my sort of induction, if you like, into the world of children and and prisoners, both male and female. So I've always been fascinated by the topic. But Lucy, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing on it. And I don't mean for that to sound condescending, which it often can, but... You know, it's so brilliant that, you know, you're moving into the gaps and, and doing the research in the areas where there just simply hasn't been any research and there simply isn't any data. You know, it's 2021, how can this be that we are just now trying to get this stuff out and,
2: and to get a spotlight on it. It's such impactful work because small changes will make such a difference to how women and particularly mothers experience the criminal justice system. I always quote Rob Canton, who who says we can't have effective criminal justice without having effective social justice. And I think that has to be the starting point. We have to address some of the inequalities that women and especially mothers face in the community in order to make good some of the uh, some of the harm, damage and harm that occurs, again, in the criminal justice system. You know, there's there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do, but
1: I'm optimistic that in 10, 20 years' time, hopefully, we'll both still be alive and we'll actually see some change happening.
2: Definitely, definitely. I do see small changes all of the time. I I am optimistic, but there's a lot more to do.
1: Great. Lucy, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Edwina.
1: Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London
2: Podcast Company.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better?